Yeah. I've never heard of that as a symptom. I know. I feel like the symptoms are just everything. Like irregularity. Toothache. COVID. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Have you heard of COVID toe? That's something. Yeah. What is it? I don't know. I didn't want to look because I didn't want to <laughs> see any images. Do you know what it is, Nick? Well, now I want to know what it is. <laughs> well, you could Google it. <laughs> I feel like your toe gets like big, bigger. Like gout or something? Yeah, oh, no. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the so-called clean energy natural gas facilities that dot the Louisiana coastline have been found to be actively and continuously emitting more methane into the atmosphere than had been promised, according to an air monitor's report. And we'll get the latest on the controversial jail building known as Phase 3. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, investigative climate reporter Sarah Sneath. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for being here. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. And managing editor Katie Rechtall. Hey, Katie. Hey. Hi, all. So, Sarah, up first with you, air monitoring consultant James Doty released a report showing that all the liquefied natural gas export terminals in Texas and Louisiana are spitting out huge emissions, much more, in fact, than had been estimated by industry. Tell us what this report said. Yeah, so basically, um, Doty was hired by Earthworks to uh, use a optical, optical gas imaging camera to look at these facilities and there's two in Texas and three in Louisiana and the camera allows him to see these emissions because it shows like temperature differences in the air and so what he's seeing is just these uh, facilities radiating with uh, methane emissions and um, methane obviously is really bad for the environment it's it's a pretty potent greenhouse um, gas. Yeah, and the um, the story that you wrote for the lens has um, the images. It has a, a snapshot of those images, and the the color of it is really striking. How much more is it um, emitting than what industry experts had estimated? Um, I'm not exactly sure of like the amount over the top they're emitting. I mean, obviously, um, like Dodie's camera isn't doesn't quantify like the leaks that are happening. Mm -hmm. um, so the facilities report their leaks to the um, environmental regulators in you know Louisiana and Texas. But what they're reporting even to the environmental regulators is um, is uh, leaks that go over their permitting caps. You know, hundreds of times in a year, um, as is the case with the Calcasieu Pass facility. And so because of that, that facility, Venture Global, who runs that facility, they've asked that their emissions caps be raised 17% for, um, you know, greenhouse gases and another 17% for toxic emissions. So those are emissions that might not contribute to global warming, but they do cause health problems. So this is that classic asking for, begging for, forgiveness rather than asking for permission. Yeah, I mean, but also it's it's not even just asking for forgiveness because um, they want to be able to do this uh, and be able to do so in a legal way next time. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like 
um, uh, Ann Rolfes with the Bucket Brigade describes it as, you know, getting ticketed by a cop and then saying, well, why don't you increase the speed limit? Right. Then I won't be speeding next time I come through here. Right. <laughs> That's a really good comparison. Yeah. I mean, it's shocking that, that somebody would say, oh, yeah, we, we were going to emit this much. We're emitting more. It was about the equipment, right, Sarah? They said their equipment wasn't wasn't functioning correctly, so they needed to up their the amount of emissions they could exude. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, um, some of this, uh, you know, might come from the fact that a lot of these LNG export facilities are being built in a modular way, which means that they're primarily being put together somewhere else in another country and then being shipped to the U.S. and like put together and. I've written a story about that in the past and why that could be bad for Louisiana, other than just these emissions, too, is that it decreases the amount of jobs um, that, you know, it, it brings to Louisiana when these facilities are almost all built overseas and then sent here. Hmm. I'm curious about the fact that Doty did this testing. Does that mean that the EPA or, or the Louisiana monitoring whatever um, agency is responsible for monitoring them. Had he not done this, would we not have known about the increased emissions? That's right. Yeah, there's not a lot of um, just like ambient air monitors in Louisiana. And those that that do exist aren't always at the, well, I don't think any of them really are on the fence line of the facilities. So you don't get to see like how much um, you know, facilities are, ex- you know, exceeding their permits, usually, um, other than these fence communities continuously complaining. And one of the things that communities often ask for is some sort of air monitor that they can look at and see if the air is safe for them to breathe. So industry is relied upon to police themselves and to report their own emissions, their own That's findings. True. That's true. And actually, an interesting thing that didn't make it into the story is that Doty got pretty testy with the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality um, staff because he really felt like his questions about why are these facilities being allowed to emit beyond their permits weren't really getting answered. Um, And he is a former air regulator himself. He used to work for the Texas Department of Environmental Quality. Um, And... uh, so, I mean, he knows the standards and, and everything, and he knows what they should be doing. And he was asking them, you know, kind of like, why aren't you doing your job? And uh, the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality got so testy with him that they said that they're not going to communicate with him directly anymore <laughs> um, via these, like, letters that they were writing back and forth to each other in the permitting documents. How many more of these operations are planned for the future? A lot. Um, there are 20 new facilities um, planned, uh, and most of them in, located in Louisiana and Texas. Um, and then there are five additional expansions to existing facilities. Are they all different companies, or are there, are there bunches that are under the umbrella of, of several large companies? There are a couple companies that are... Um, going to be, you know, the biggest uh, um, eventual uh, exporters of natural gas if they're allowed to build all the terminals that they want to build. For example, Venture Global already has Calcasieu Pass, um, and it's currently building Factamins LNG, um, and it also is trying to seek permitting for a third facility called CP2. Um, That would also be in Cameron Parish. 
I want you to put this in perspective for the listeners, those that didn't read the story. Uh, I encourage everyone to do at thelensnola.org. But um, there's a paragraph here that I'm looking at about the 25 plan projects to expand and build produce more than nine will produce more than 90 million tons of greenhouse gases annually, which um, the report notes is is equal to 11 million passenger vehicles running for a year. Can you explain what the the crux of the issue here is because of LNG is meant to be this clean bridge fuel? Yeah. I think this becomes an issue. It's a, this is an issue in a lot of my reporting and that industry spin has become the popular idea of what reality is. And it's just not the case. You know, the term natural gas, why do we call it natural gas? It's fracked gas, you know, it's gas from, uh, that is a byproduct of producing oil. Um, they have been trying to sell fracked gas to different markets forever. I mean, like they, uh, ever since there's been a glutton of it, since um, fracking really hit its um, height in like 2013 or so, they have been trying to sell off natural gas for plastic production. It's part of um, a lot of agriculture products as well. Um, So this LNG export situation is just another way for them to try to sell off this byproduct of oil. And it is a greenhouse gas, natural gas, while it, if it's burned, it produces um, less carbon dioxide than coal does when it's burned to produce the same amount of energy. Mm. Um, if it's not burned, natural gas is mostly mostly made up of methane, which is a worse, it traps more heat than carbon dioxide does. Um, and so we know that methane leaks all across the natural gas production line at the well site, through the, you know, during the pipeline, transport, at these LNG export facilities, once it's on the barge and it goes overseas and it's then burned and somewhere in Europe or Asia to produce energy and that gives off more greenhouse gases. So it really isn't a natural or slash clean fuel. You know, it's, um, it's a fossil fuel. Uh, and while it has the potential to produce less emissions than coal, the IPCC, which is the um, Intergovernmental Plan- uh, Panel on Climate Change, as well as several other um, agencies have come out and and international scientists have come out to say that we really need to be reducing um, even natural gas usage by the year 2030 if we're going to hit these net zero um, climate pledges. So uh, it's still a fossil fuel, and we know that we need to stop burning so many fossil fuels. So the idea of adding 20 new facilities, and each one of these, you know, is bigger than a coal plant, you know, it's bigger than multiple coal plants, you know, we know that uh, this is uh, out of line with what we need to do to um, avoid the worst climate disasters. Do they make any serious attempt to capture the, the methane at any stage? Well, I would say read the lens because we have a story coming about that very <laughs> soon. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And after this report, um, what are the chances that anything will change? I think that there's some real questions about that um, Calcasieu Pass facility. Uh, You know, the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality has sent them a notice saying that they could potentially get fined for the amount of times that they've leaked beyond their permits. Um, And that was just uh, a few months ago. So 
um, we will see, uh, you know, if LDAQ really puts its foot down in this situation. And an interesting, I guess, development you can say is that LDAQ just got a new head this year as well. So, we, you know, there's, there's a question of whether or not that new leader um, will, you know, take steps that his predecessor did not. Okay, so... I'm loath to ask this question because it, but I'm, I need to, it's just a very cynical question. If they're fined, does that necessarily suggest that they will not receive permission for next, next year to increase their emissions to match what they did this year? I'm just not sure. I'm not sure about that. You know, um, LBQ didn't answer that question or like answer how they were weighing whether or not to, um, give the facility those increased um, permit caps, but it wouldn't be the first facility to get an increase in its permit caps because there's a facility in uh, in Texas that has done the same thing multiple times where they've asked for their permits to be increased and they have gotten. And a fine. So they may get fined and also say, sure, increase your emissions. So a slap on the wrist and permission to continue to do. I have to say that that between your piece, which was so startling to a lot of people I've been hearing, like about just the the amount of emissions coming from LNG terminal, and then the grist piece that we that we partnered with, it talks about just the, how big those facilities are, how massive they are, how many acres they take up on fragile coastal land, and how they're gobbling up land along that along our coast it just feels like man we we've been worried about cancer alley for i mean it's cancer alley has been in the top of the headlines for um in recent years it's just getting higher and higher in the headlines and i just don't understand how we have cancer alley and we don't even seem to be aware that we're making like greenhouse super highway you know it's really like giant to me yeah i mean i think there is um I think we're at this real moment uh, right now in Louisiana where there's a question of, are we going to double down on fossil fuels or are we going to transition like the rest of the nation is um, saying that it will? And, uh, you know, we have a state uh, climate plan as well. Actually, we have the climate task force, the governor's climate task force, which has also set goals around um, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that you know, leaders need to be, or we need to be asking our leadership, you know, are they really making decisions that are in line with the goals that we have set and that we've set it are a priority to us? I mean, we not only, like you said, are there are all these facilities coming online, but also Louisiana is just extremely susceptible to climate change. You know, we get uh, more intense hurricanes here. We're getting all this heat that's happening lately. Um, a prolonged period of really hot days is something that's going to continue to happen. And um, it could get worse if we continue to, if we double down on fossil fuels, it will definitely get worse. Sarah, thanks for this story. We'll look for the next one next week. Soon. Okay. Soon. Soon. All right. (laughs) Thanks, Sarah. We're We're getting it together. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are investigative climate reporter Sarah Sneath, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and managing editor Katie Rechtal. 
Hi, I'm Marta Jusen. If you've been a longtime reader of The Lens, you probably know we are a place to learn about important issues, especially those underrepresented by other media sources. It's hard work, and it takes a dedicated staff who care about this community. Please make a tax-deductible contribution today to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Nick, turning to phase three. Sounds like the city is cobbling together funding to build the phase three facility. So does it sound like uh, maybe they're capitulating at this point? You know, I wouldn't necessarily say that this is indicative of uh, that. I mean, you know, the, the city has already allocated a, a quite a bit of money for this project. Um, they allocated $26 million last year already. Um, so this this is a new proposed reallocation of about $22 million. The fact that they've identified the funding, I don't think necessarily kind of implies that the that their position has changed. And I actually think that the really interesting thing will be whether or not they, uh, you know, submitted to the city council for a vote and what they what happens if the city council decides not to vote on it or or denies uh the funding allocation because that's really what what it will come down to whether or not they decide to move forward with it regardless of of kind of that procedural issue which uh, i get into a little bit in the story and there's there's some disagreement on whether or not that's that's necessary um so i think that's really kind of the the question right now i think the fact that they've identified this funding is is you know, expect more or less expected at this point. Okay. There were some eye um, opening earmarks in there or, or, um, you know, in their Excel spreadsheet or whatever it was, that PDF that you've got on the website, 11 cents was, was an interesting amount. They're just asking managers to, to find any money you can. Is that what we can read by that? You know, we don't, I don't really have much insight into their, their process. Um, I tried many times to get someone on the phone to, to chat with me about this, but really, um, but you know, they, they didn't provide anyone to, to kind of give me, give me a broader explanation, both of how they decided to, to come to the, pick these projects specifically and kind of any more information about what, what the projects were. So a lot of it was kind of trying to read into these little descriptions of, of where they're pulling money from. Uh, you know, you referenced 11 cents coming from a completed NOPD firing range project. You know, why that was included on there, I have no <laughs> idea. Um, I don't, it, it, and I asked the city about it. I don't know if it was a mistake or if, but anyway, you know, yeah, there, there's a handful of completed projects and relatively small amounts of money uh, from those are being funneled into phase three. But then we have um, kind of these bigger amounts, you know, several million dollars coming from parts and parkway improvements, uh, citywide building repairs, energy efficiency upgrades. Um, so that's kind of the kind of bigger, bigger pieces of, of this funding reallocation. And there's still some question of whether or not the city's going to need to find even more money. Um, you know, for a while, they were indicating that they needed an extra $37 million. Um, this proposed list only gets them to $22 million more. So I'm not sure, you know, I asked the city what, about that discrepancy and they didn't, they didn't respond. Um, I'm not sure if they're going to need to come up with another, uh, you know, 16 or so million dollars. Mm -hmm. But, um, 
that's what we're looking at. And, and I think, you know, for people who have been opposed to this project for a long time, they're looking at money that could could be going to the parks, could be going to, uh, you know, infrastructure repair and maintenance. And, and, and that's frustrating. Um, but, you know, that that's what it is. Right. Talk about what that might look like for, for, for example, building repairs and in energy efficiency, just dovetailing with what we just discussed, energy efficiency improvements in the long run would pay themselves back, you'd think. So it's, it, that must be a tough one for them to, um, throw onto that chopping block. Yeah. You know, like I say, it's a little bit of, um, you know, we have to kind of guess what what the actual specifics are going to look like because we don't know exactly what I mean, what the actual repairs they're going to be doing, what the actual energy efficiency upgrades look like. The specifics of those things, you know, we we just don't have any any answers to. Um, in the past, they had indicated that that some of the projects they were pulling money from weren't actually ready to move forward anyway. Um, so it was more kind of this this. Uh, decision making where where they could find find projects that you know maybe the maybe there had been some some delay aspirational projects yeah i think there's i think there's some of that as well um but you know with with things like building repairs and maintenance i mean those are things that you know are kind of constantly needed and reducing the scope you know uh i think i think is raising some real concerns so i mean even things like you know, tree planting in the parks. I think people look at the kind of the heat wave that we've been having recently and and kind of investing in, in green space and investing in kind of a, a, a canopy and things like that. That seem like they should be urgent. And so, so meanwhile, there's there's two things. Ha- well, there's a lot of things happening, but the two that are coming to mind right now are the the continuing battle, if you will, at the court where where there's Lance Afric. Yeah who is insisting that the city move forward and, and multiple parties aligned against that at the city and the sheriff's office saying no. So that that's one side. The other is at the city council, whether they need to allocate the funds at the city council level. Tell us about that. Yeah. So kind of the status of the, the litigation around this building is that the sheriff filed a new opposition to it. Um, and the magistrate judge issued a report and recommendation basically denying that that challenge and, and calling it frivolous, basically. Um, the district judge, Lance Afric, will he'll likely ex- accept that report and recommendations and and uh, order the city to, to move forward. And part of that order will, all, will also be an agreement between the sheriff's office and the city that the sheriff had previously refused to sign. Mm-hmm. So the judge basically said, OK, if you're going to refuse to sign this, I'm just going to put it in a legal order and, and you have to you know, abide by it. Um, so that will likely happen in, in the coming weeks. Um, in terms of the, uh, the funding allocations, it's unclear what happens if the city council you know, declined to, to approve this funding. Mm. Um, I think it's likely that the city will get held in contempt of court um, if they try and use that as an excuse not to move forward with this project in any sort of uh, timely manner. And that would mean fines for the city likely. I mean, it could potentially mean jail time for city officials. So I think it's something that, you know, everyone would, would probably like to avoid, but 
uh, I think it's kind of getting down to the wire. And if the city is really insisting that, that they need approval from the city council, uh, how that all kind of shakes out is, hmm. uh, you know, still up in the air. Okay. And then finally, I think I read in there that there was a, um, a signed contract now with, with a, a contractor, McDonald, McDonald construction services. This is a naive question. Does that freeze the cost at this amount? I think those, those contracts, if, if it turns out that they, uh, you know, there are unforeseen costs, I think that those contracts can, uh, change over the course of construction. But yes, I mean, the 80, that $89 million contract is, is built into this broader $109 million projection of cost. And the 17 million is, is kind of other fees and, and what they're calling soft costs of the construction. Um, so yeah, I mean, more or less that $89 million is, is, is set. Um, and you know, they put out a request for proposals and, and got, got one, bid, got one bid right. uh, twice. Um, so yeah, that is, that is more or less set. Um, <sighs> okay. All right. Well, from my perspective, it sounds like there's a little bit of movement. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll see. <laughs> There's a there's a, a meeting next week um, with with the judge a, a status conference and there may be um, you know kind of some more uh, weighty threats uh, issued. Who good? For moving forward. Okay, that'll be exciting. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it struck me that we we knew so little about the jail's actual operations until we've been hearing about them in court, even though we had, you know, Katie Schwartzman and the team that brought this suit were pretty formidable. They were, had a lot of connections with clients in the jail, but just the day-to-day -day information about what haps, happens in that jail as uh, revealed to us through the federal monitors largely is really helpful. And I say that because in 2010 or so, when they were determining jail size, I'm trying to think of when it was. I think it was around that time. I was covering those meetings every week, and I just, there was no discussion about the number of beds that would be needed for mental health concerns, period. And I know that part of that was that there was also no sense of where healthcare was going to be provided in the facility. Like the plans were sort of top secret, and so the infirmary and all that stuff wasn't really. Um, outlined clearly on the on the designs, but I feel like those questions we should have been asking those questions 13 years ago, like before we built this jail. I mean, I know everybody knows that now, but I sort of feel like it's interesting to hear you talk about the jail. And here we are trying to go back. We just have a brand new jail, and we can't deal with like the one third or one half of people that we always knew had mental illness that were always made it into the jail, right? And then we have Sarah talking about like stuff that we've known for a long time too. Oh, we have all these polluters coming in. We know how this ends up, right? It just feels like, Sarah, is there any, is there any federal agency that would ever step in that where we could actually get information? Because I feel like the difference between what Nick is reporting on and what you're reporting on is that we can actually get a fair amount of detail about jail operations through the federal monitors. So uh, one tactic that uh, communities in Cancer Alley have, ta have taken recently, and there was actually another um, 
complaint uh, lodged in the Lake Charles area as well. But basically, environmental justice communities in Louisiana have filed complaints with the Environmental Protection Agency saying that uh, Louisiana state agencies have um, discriminated against them by allowing air pollution, disproportionate amount of air pollution in their communities. Um, and the EPA last April agreed, accepted that complaint and decided it would investigate. And, uh, and then last month it dropped its investigation. The Environmental Protection Agency just dropped its investigation. And it was pretty weird because it was like, that came after 14 months of negotiations and which included in uh, October of last year, the EPA wrote this really damning letter to the LDQ and Louisiana Department of Health saying, we're seeing it basically. We see the discrimination in the air pollution policies. You're allowing, you're giving air permits to facilities that are clearly gonna deteriorate the air in areas already overburdened by pollution. Um, and then they just dropped the complaint and they can drop the investigation last month without any findings of discrimination. And a lot of people have been trying to figure out why that is. And so I just happened to have a story published today in The Guardian about um, Jeff Landry uh, pretty much kind of tampered with that whole uh, process. He hired two attorneys to work on behalf of the state who actually are also representation for Formosa, the mega you know, the company that's um, trying to propose a, a mega uh, plastic plant in St. James Parish. So he basically hired those two attorneys to represent the state and the EPA's investigation. Um, and we found, a uh, co-reporter and I found, um, you know, the contract between him and those Formosa attorneys uh, and the um, some some documents showing that those attorneys were trying to battle it out with the EPA to not change Louisiana's, um, you know, air pollution uh, permitting in a way that would, you know, disadvantage them. Wow. Um, so there is a similar process because uh, DEQ gets its rights to uh, do the air permitting through, you know, through the EPA. Basically, the EPA allows the state to um, to do permitting under the Clean Air Act. Um, and uh, and so people do have the ability to do, since it's a, it's a federal program, they do have the right to say that, you know, if their Title VI civil rights are violated. Um, but now there's a real question of if this process that they did have, you know, is even gonna bring anything in the future because the EPA has shown that it's willing to drop cases if Jeff Landry gets involved, you know, gets his hands in something. And so, you know, it's unclear, but I think like these kinds of situations, like they're long drawn out things. And I don't want to end like on a like completely negative note, because I think these communities are looking, they're constantly looking for ways to, um, to rectify the situation and to stop uh, more polluting facilities from coming into their communities. And they have had successes, you know, even with this, uh, the same chemical company that, um, whose attorneys, you know, Jeff Landry hired, uh, Formosa, um, you know, there were a couple communities that filed a suit, you know, against the state department of environmental quality for the air, for 14 air permits that they gave to that facility. And the district court did actually, um, like basically vacate those permits. So, that was a huge legal win for them. Um, but unfortunately, like when I think 
those communities get a win, what comes is in response is a huge effort on behalf of these petrochemical companies to not let any more wins happen. Got to bomb on the conversation. <laughs> That's a lead balloon ending up this conversation. Whoa. We'll try to end on a good note here. And um, thank you for your great reporting, both of you. And Katie, always your um, thoughts and, and the way you wrap things in together are really appreciated. So ha everybody have a good weekend. Stay, yeah, you too. stay cool. Bye. Okay. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, investigative climate reporter Sarah Snee, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and managing editor Katie Rechtal. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>